Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. On this episode, we'll talk to Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist Tom Friedman about his newest book, Hot, Flat, and Crowded, Why We Need a Green Revolution and How It Can Renew America, which was published on September 8th. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Tom Friedman is the foreign affairs columnist for The Times. His first beat for The Times was in 1981 as a financial reporter specializing in coverage of OPEC and oil-related issues. I spoke to him back on July 24th, just before he left for an extended visit to the melting glaciers of Greenland. I called him at his office in Washington, D.C. Tom Friedman, hot, flat, and crowded. Tell us what that means. Well, you know, basically what it means is that... uh the, what we're seeing out in the world today, it seems to me, is that the convergence of three, you know, big, big, uh, seismic events. Uh, the first is obviously global warming. Um, uh, the second is what I call global flattening, which is really just my shorthand for the rise of middle classes all across the world, uh, in bigger numbers than ever before, from China to Brazil to India to Russia. Middle classes that increasingly have the kind of energy and consumption patterns, demands, and aspirations of Americans, and at the same time, global crowding, global population growth. The fact that um, when I was born, 1953, there were about 2.68 billion people on the planet, and if I live to be 100, God willing, and keep eating yogurt, uh, according to the UN, there'll be over 9 billion people on the planet, and so that means the planet's population will more than triple in my own lifetime, which also has its own energy resource um, uh, implications. And so what the basic argument of the book is, is that these three, you know, huge seismic events, global warming, global flattening, and global crowding, are like three flames that have converged to create a really big fire. And this fire is boiling uh, a whole set of problems, five in particular, that I think are really going to shape the 21st century and a new era of history that we're going into, which I call the energy climate era. And those five problems are climate change. Petro dictatorship, the rise of you know, Russia, Iran, uh, you know Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, um, uh, energy and natural resource supply and demand constraints, and we see that from food to fuel today. Uh, biodiversity loss, the fact that we're right now in the middle of the sixth great extinction phase um, uh, in the Earth's history that we know of, and finally something I call energy poverty, the 1.6 billion people on the planet who still have no on-off switch in their life because they have no direct grid electricity. And the basic argument of the book is, you know, hot, flat, and crowded are driving these five trends into wholly new realms. And how we manage these five problems is what's really going to determine the stability and instability of the 21st century. Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you use the word at the beginning of your comments, you said, obviously, global warming. Right. And it's not obvious still to some people. Sure. And until we recognize the reality of this, you're not going to have the political will to put any kind of system in place to deal with it. So let's just spend a minute on, right on, on that. Uh, how, how, how are you going to convince Rush Limbaugh and Jim Inhofe? Well, you know, um, you know, there, there's a there's a kind of political answer, and there is a um, uh, and then there's a scientific answer, as um, as your own magazine has has you know been so effective at conveying. Um, uh, the political way to approach this is to say to them, um, well, let's say the um, climate 
uh, uh, believers, those who believe in climate change, um, are wrong. Let's say they're wrong. But we do everything we can in our power to prepare our economy for a world of climate change anyways. We, we shift to a clean energy system. We, um, uh, we, we adapt how we use energy. We become hyper-efficient. What's the worst that will happen? Right. What's the worst that will happen is in a world that's, that's just flat and crowded. Forget hot. Let's take hot off the table. In a world that's just flat and crowded, we will be leaders in the next great global industry because we're going to have to do this just because flat meets crowded. Right. In the book, you, you refer to the fact that, you know, you, you sort of, uh, quote Inhofe because he thinks climate change is a hoax. But you wrote, if climate change is a hoax, it's the most wonderful one ever perpetrated. Absolutely, because everything you would do to prepare for climate change is, is it's almost like training for the Olympic triathlon. Um, you know, if you train for the Olympic triathlon, maybe you'll make the Olympics, maybe you'll win, but even if you don't, you'll make yourself fitter, stronger, healthier, more independent, and more secure. So if the climate, you know, believers, and I'm, I am one of them, um, are right, uh, you know, we'll be better prepared for climate change. And if we're wrong, we'll simply be stronger, healthier, more competitive, entrepreneurial, and respected because we'll no longer be addicted to a dirty fuel system. So to me, it's a win-win. And, and, and that's why, you know, in some ways, this book avowedly, um, uh, speaks out of both sides of its mouth. Avowedly. Mm-hmm. Because basically what I'm trying to say to the Limbaugh's and the Imhoff's, I've got a plan to make America stronger. More competitive, more entrepreneurial. It's to go green. And to, um, my friends in the climate and environmental community and scientific community, it's, I've got a plan to make America greener. Um, it turns out it's the same plan. Right. And, uh, and, and, and that's what I really hope people will take away from this. Yeah. You say that going green is a national security imperative and green is the new red, white, and blue. So why don't we talk about that for a little bit? Well, it, it precisely because, and again, goes back to the thesis in a world that is hot, flat, and crowded, um, clean power, clean technology, the ability to, um, have your energy in, in both a clean form, where you know the cost of your power and you can control that much better. Um, that's going to be a source of power generally in the world. That's going to be a currency of power every bit as much as tanks, planes, and nuclear missiles have been during the Cold War. In a world that's hot, flat, and crowded, clean tech has to be the next great global industry. And therefore, the country that takes the lead in clean power and clean tech is going to, by definition, be an economic and strategic leader in the 21st century. And that's why there is absolutely no contradiction, not only between going green and being patriotic, geopolitical, and geostrategic. They actually go together. And you talk about the fact that, though, to accomplish this, and and you're not sure that right now we really have what it takes to accomplish it. But in, but in order to accomplish it, we're going to have to put in place not just some strategies, but an entire new system. And one of the things you talk about is the problems you personally had just trying to install a couple of solar panels <laughs> at your home. We need to to overhaul the entire system for making these changes in this country. Um, why, why, let's start. Let's go back. Why a system? Why, why do I sort of stress a systematic approach? Well, if you don't do things systematically, you end up doing corn ethanol in Iowa and thinking you solved the problem when all you've done is really drive up food prices and encourage more people to plant palm oil, basically, in the Amazon. You know, would, um, would corn ethanol even be on the table if Iowa didn't have the first caucus? There's no, no, no question. It would not be on the table. This is another form of agricultural welfare, in my view. 
Um, and it is not a systematic approach. And but so let's go back. What what, what would be the why is a system so important? Because a, first of all, because right now we have a system. It's the dirty fuel system, and it works really well. Um, one mile from your house, probably you can find a gas station to fill your car with dirty fuel. It's one block, actually. Exactly. So this system works really well. I mean, it gets that dirty fuel from the oil well onto the tanker to the refiner to your neighborhood and into your car, and it's a system. And um, what that system allows is for ordinary people to do pretty extraordinary things, to get personal mobility at what for many years was a very cheap price. Of course, they were, we, we now know in doing that, we were also despoiling the environment, strengthening petrodictatorship, driving biodiversity loss, etc. So what I'm basically saying is we have a system now, and you have to replace that system with a clean fuel system because only a system allows ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And if we don't enable ordinary people to do extraordinary things by way of energy efficiency, uh, clean power and conservation, you'll never, ever achieve the scale of change we need to address the problems of climate change, biodiversity loss, petrodictatorship, etc. So what are some of the actual things that have to change to put that new system into effect? Well, you know, a lot of people um, have different takes on this. And one of the things you hear most often, people say, we need a Manhattan Project. I'm against the Manhattan Project. Um, because I don't think um, 12 scientists in, in Los Alamos are going to solve this problem, are going to give us what we need by way of a system. So for me, there's sort of two big things the way, the way I think about this. First of all, you know, a lot of people will, will ask me and, and, and many others, hey, hey are, you a, are you a solar guy? you a nuclear guy? you a wind guy? Um, and what I tell everyone is that I'm an ecosystem or innovation guy. What do I mean by That's my fuel. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we're not going to regulate our way out of this problem. The only way we're going to get the scale of abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons, which is what we need, abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons, is through innovation breakthroughs that we just do not have right now, uh, to, to give us those kind of electrons at a scale we do not have right now. And so the the first question then is what would create that ecosystem? It's not to me a Manhattan Project, it's a market. What we don't have in energy today is a real market that would encourage a hundred thousand Manhattan projects in a hundred thousand garages with a hundred thousand ideas out of which a hundred will be really promising. Ten will be actually workable and two will be the next green Google. And that's what we're looking for. How do you get that kind of market? You got to shape it in two ways. One is with the right price signal. We have to have a tax on carbon. That is long-term fixed and durable. So those 100,000 inventors know if they do come up with that breakthrough, that if OPEC lowers the price of oil, it won't knock them out of the game, number but, one. But what politician is going to actually... Well, let me, let me, okay, sure. And, and the second thing we need is we need to rewrite the rules around our utilities, as people have started to do in California and Idaho. So our utilities are incentivized not to act like $5 all-you-can-eat electron buffets where they get richer by the more electrons you consume and use, but we actually turn them into partners for energy efficiency so they're paid not for kilowatts sold but for save-a-watts, for watts saved. Right. And, so and, and those are the kind of the two big things. Now, you asked the question, what politician is going to do that? And, and the answer is, so far, Kevin found him or her. And um, 
and you can say, well, you know, wh- what does that mean then? What do you advocate? Well, what, what, what's, what's happened to us is basically precisely because every politician who's looked at this and said, oh, no, no, taxes, that, that's off the table. What's happened is the market has done it. And if politicians won't do it, the market, they basically said, we're just going to let hot, flat, and crowded keep converging, and we'll let the market do it. Well, that market brought us $140 barrel oil, and it bought us a $4.5 gasoline. And um, uh, if you like letting the market do this, uh, that's what you're going to get. Now, you could say, well, hey, isn't the market stimulating the alternatives? Yes, to some degree. But here's what happens. Here's what's bad about just letting the market do this. Three bad things happen. First of all, when you let the market run all this policy, all the biggest rent, all the biggest profits from the old system go to people who have drawn a bullseye on our back, go to the petrodictators, okay? Because when the market sends the price up to $140 a barrel and you don't have a tax on it to capture some of that yourself, all of it goes to bad guys, number one. Number two, what doesn't go abroad to bad guys, strengthening our enemies and weakening our balance of payments and our currency goes here to legacy industries, coal companies, oil companies, gas companies, um, uh, people who don't have a great, huge incentive for moving to a new system. Thirdly, what happens is the people who have the incentive to move to a new system, the uh, renewable energy people say, hmm, the market's in charge. Well, if the market's in charge, it can send the price up, but it can also send the price down. So do I really want to bet the farm on renewable energy because maybe the price will go to $70 a barrel tomorrow and my wind and solar will be out of business. Which is why you really promote the idea of some, uh, some price floors on exactly. some of these things. So, so that, so you remember what Jeff Immel says in the book, to me is a very important quote, quote. He says, Tom, I'm not going to make a 40 year multi-billion dollar bet on a 15 minute price signal. Mm-hmm. And who would? And you also have the uh, the hypothetical presidential candidate coming back to the uh, to the issue of well where where do you want that money to go? You can call it a tax, but right now we are in fact paying a tax that's going to uh, to fund madrasas that are preaching exactly. anti-Americanism all over the world. And that's why I say people say you know um, how could you raise this in a campaign? I said well let's imagine you're in a campaign. Let, let's imagine the discussion, okay? And and uh, and and your opponent says. There goes my opponent, Mr. Friedman, another tax and spend liberal. Once again, now he's for an energy tax. He's never met a tax he didn't like. Now he wants to tax your gasoline more. What would I say? I would say, well, let's get one thing straight. My opponent and I, my Republican opponent and I, we're both for a tax. I just prefer my taxes go to the U.S. Treasury, and he doesn't mind that his taxes go to the Saudi, Russian, or Venezuelan tre- uh, treasuries. But let's not fool ourselves that we're not paying a tax here. I just have this, it's a quaint tick I have. You know, it's just a little thing, I don't know where it comes from, that I like my tax dollars to go to the American government. It's just a tick I have. But it turns out my opponent, he doesn't care if it goes to Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, or Venezuela. Yeah, now, if you a, can't win that debate, you don't belong in politics. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we'll talk about the energy internet and, and what life could potentially be like in, in 2020. Well, you know, the energy internet is really my name for what happens when IT meets ET, when the information revolution meets the energy technology revolution. And, and that is, I believe, the platform, the breakthrough platform in which a lot of this innovation is going to happen and will be built. And basically in that world, um, you will live, uh, you will have a, you'll have a smart grid, 
um, that is fed by clean, abundant, cheap, reliable electrons that will be connected to a smart home. Um, a smart home is a home in which every electrical and energy device will have a URL, will be connected um, wirelessly uh, to either your utility or to your home, what I call smart black box, uh, as well as your car. And they will manage in the most efficient way possible, without you having to think about it, the purchase of the cleanest, cheapest, most reliable electrons at the lowest cost price and running things with the most extreme efficiency at the precise hour of the day. It's bringing all that intelligence to how we use energy, which we've never done before. And let me go back to the market business. Just just say one one last thing. Because think about it, in the old days, what happened was, you know, first of all, when your electricity went out, your power company didn't even know it. Or you had to call them. You had to call them. And and basically the power the power system stopped at your meter. And all that happened was the meter maid came out and read your meter and said, you're using these many electrons. But what happened inside your house was completely dumb. It was not connected to any intelligent form of efficiency management. And uh, the, the, the idea that we would somehow be manipulating the market uh, as opposed to the totally free market that it is today. That's that's just a faulty idea. Because oh, yeah, the totally market... free market dominated globally by the world's biggest cartel, right. um, you know, dominated domestically by um, fossil fuel companies who have written all the rules in Congress. You know, you'd need a, a two pages of Scientific American to go through all the rules, uh, the depletion allowances, the tax shenanigans these guys have written in to give them advantages. We wouldn't want to upset that free market, would we? Um, there's no such thing as a free market any more than you think crops would grow on a farm or a garden without you know, fertilizer, without proper plowing, without proper rows, without intelligence brought to them. Markets are shaped, and they're shaped by rules, incentives, and disincentives. And right now, our market is shaped by the dirty fuel system. Let's talk a little bit for the Scientific American audience. Let's talk about the importance of biodiversity and, and ecosystem services and why conservation is, is economically a good idea. Well, it, it, it's really for two reasons. One is that um, we forget how many services. It sounds like gobbledygook, you know, ecosystem service, but it's hugely important. The things that nature regulates for us, the water that it filters, the unnatural pesticides that it produces, not to mention the beauty and aestheticism that make life worth living. Um, do we really want to get rid of all that? And, and, and as E.O. Wilson says, you know, start trying to run nature ourselves as if it's some spaceship and we can just turn the dials. Well, you know, we are on the cusp of an era. We're now, according to Conservation International, seeing species go extinct at a rate of one every 20 minutes. We're in the middle of a massive uh, extinction phase simply as a result of economic development and growth. Um, uh, John Holdren, you know, I think says in the book, you know, we're, we're, it's like we're burning down wings of a library with these rare, amazing books that we haven't even read yet. That's what we're doing. And that's also a big part of this story. And therefore, if you do not have an ethic of conservation as part of your energy system, if we ever do come up with abundant, cheap, clean, reliable electrons, What's going to happen is that will become, for many people, a license to drive their Hummer through the Amazon. Right. Because if electrons are abundant, cheap, clean, and reliable, why not? And that's why you know I have this three-part system of energy efficiency, innovation in clean, abundant, cheap, reliable electrons, and an ethic of conservation. 
You say we are the flood, we are the asteroid, and we better learn how to be the ark. Absolutely, because without it, um, uh, if we aren't Noah and we don't build the ark, we could actually save the climate and kill the planet. You know, that is, we could we could create a world where we could, we've combated and or mitigated climate change, but without paying attention to what's going on in the in the realm of biodiversity, we could save the climate and wake up in a world with so many fewer species. So many fewer plants and animals. And there are many studies that show that the, the more varied your ecosystem is, the more productive it is. It, it's not only more productive, but it gives you so many more tools for adaptation. How many medicines, you know, are there lurking, you know, in the tropical forests of the world today that we haven't even explored? Natural medicines that, that we already use. It's diversity is the key to adaptation. Because every single species has had to solve it's, Some problems. It's, it's pl- right. It's problems chemically, and we we have barely scratched the surface of what the chemical compounds are that are out there that these species have come up with. Absolutely. I've actually been saying this for for months now because I'm I'm pretty pessimistic, and one of my big fears is that in the future, another generation, you will see a lot of Americans go off to work as maids and. Uh, and uh luggage carriers in fancy european hotels and then i read your chapter about the indonesian made export mm. business and so what is it that we have to do you've talked about some of this how do we make sure that that doesn't happen here well it's a really important question and it's a subtext of the book because this isn't just a book about hot flat and crowd it's also a book about america and in many ways the the overarching you know message of the book is the world has a problem, and America has a problem. Uh, the world's problem is it's getting hot, flat, and crowded and driving these five trends. America has a problem, though, and our problem is we've lost our groove. We've lost our edge and our focus as a country. And lurking down the road, sitting down the road, inviting us down the road, is the next great global industry. It's called clean power, clean energy, clean tech. has to be the next great global industry in a world that's hot, flat, and crowded. And my argument, the call for this book, is if we take the lead in that industry, if we take the lead in solving the world's problem, we will solve our own problem. We will precisely be generating the kind of innovation, competitiveness, respect, security, breakthroughs to help the world in the most fundamental challenge it faces today. And in so doing, we will make ourselves more respected, stronger, more secure, entrepreneurial, richer, and competitive. And I think this is the ballgame, who claims that industry in a world that's hot, flat, and crowded. Yeah, somebody that you quote in the book, I forget which one, says it's not just win-win, it's win-win-win-win-win. Exactly right. You know, when you, when you go down that road of clean tech, you not only have cleaner air, you not only have a new industry, an export industry that can't be outsourced so easily in global demand, you not only become more uh, economically stable because you're not shipping all those dollars abroad, um, you not only become more secure because your your source of fuel isn't dependent on the whims of some petro dictator. So it, it's not just win-win. It's win-win-win-win-win. Why, why don't we finish up? Why don't you tell the... Uh... The naked gun two and a half story. Well, you know, the, the naked gun two and a half rule really comes from one of the worst movies ever made, uh, um, uh, naked gun two and a half, um, which is a, it, it, which is a, is a perversely though funny movie really about, um, uh, environmental regulation. Um, and it's a Leslie Nielsen movie and, and he is the, um, 
he is a cop who's basically been called upon to um, protect uh, in a fictional uh, Bush administration. The president has decided we're going to have a whole new fuel system. It's either going to be nuclear or kind of fossil fuels, coal and oil, or it's going to be based on alternatives. And in the in the movie, the uh, the fossil fuel industry and the nuclear people get together and kidnap the renewable energy guy to make sure the president can't choose that system. And Leslie Nielsen uh, basically, you know, saves the day. And the movie ends with the renewable energy guy um, laying out his plan to a room full of reporters at the National Press Club, and everybody is asleep. But the subtext of that movie is very important. And the subtext of that movie is a chapter in the book which is called, If It Isn't Boring, It Isn't Green. And what I mean by that, and it's really addressed to young people today, which is that you know, this is so much part, this revolution is so much about writing the rules. And that's why my mantra has been, change your leaders, not your light bulbs. Because leaders write the rules. The rules shape the market. The markets give you innovation at scale, at a speed, scope, and scale that we need. And the reason I wrote that chapter, it is, if it isn't boring, it isn't green, is to really try to share with young people that um, you got to understand ExxonMobil, uh, Peabody Coal, or Peabody Energy, whatever they call themselves now, they're not on, uh, on Facebook. Uh, they're in your face. They're not in your chat room. They're in the cloakroom. They know just where the rules get written. And if you aren't um, as smart about writing the rules as they are, if you're not in their face and in that cloakroom where the rules get written, uh, then you've got a hobby. I like hobbies. Uh, I play golf, and I used to build model airplanes, but I don't try to change the world as a hobby. Tom Friedman's website includes a link to download a free excerpt from the new book. The URL is www.thomaslfriedman.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, satellite images of people's shadows could be used to identify them. Story two, we've had a string of hurricanes in the last few weeks, but last year's hurricane season was fairly quiet. Researchers now think it was because the air over the Atlantic had more than the usual amount of dust blown there from the Sahara. Story 3. Canadian teenager Ben Gulak is starting MIT this semester as a seasoned inventor. He's already gotten a patent for his improved pepper grinder. Seasoned inventor, get it? Story 4. At a recent major political national convention, delegates actually chanted, Drill, baby, drill. We'll be back with the answer, but first, just want to let you know that in addition to this slightly early edition of Science Talk, we're planning on another episode this week. I have an interview scheduled for Wednesday with Nobel Prize-winning physicist Frank Wilczek about the Large Hadron Collider, and we plan to have that ready by Thursday, the 11th. Time's up on the quiz. Story 4 is true. Delegates to the Republican National Convention chanted, Drill, baby, drill. I'm assuming they were talking about oil. Here are a few sentences from Tom Friedman's August 5th New York Times column filed from Greenland. Quote, Our kids are likely going to spend a good part of their adulthood, maybe all of it, just dealing with the climate implications of our profligacy, and now our leaders are telling them the way out is offshore drilling for more climate-changing fossil fuels. Madness. Sheer madness. End quote. 
Story one is true. Satellite images of your shadow in motion as you walk could be used for identification. New Scientist magazine reports that Jet Propulsion Lab researcher Adrian Stoika told a meeting in England last month that gait analysis from satellites should make it possible to identify people by their walk. And because of the angle of the satellite, you have a better chance of getting the image of the shadow than of the actual walk. And story two is true. The 2007 hurricane season was likely quiet because of hot, dry air over the Atlantic, associated with air masses and dust from the Sahara. The report appeared in the journal Geophysical Research. Airborne dust from Africa has, in the past, been credited with enriching the soil in the Americas, specifically Brazil. All of which means that story three about the MIT freshman inventing a better pepper grinder is totally bogus, because what is true. Is that teenager Ben Gulak has invented an electric vehicle? It looks like a motorcycle, but it handles like a Segway. For more, check out the September 8th edition of the Daily Science Podcast, 60 Second Science. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. Visit Siam dot com for all the latest science news, videos, and blogs. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs> <laughs>